1: no purchase necessary. VGW group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
0: Today's vocab word is peripatia. Peripatia from the Greek meaning more or less literally falling quickly around or turning quickly around. Generally today we define it as reversal of fortune. Peripeteia, according to fucking Aristotle, is, quote, a change by which the action veers round to its opposite, subject always to our rule of probability or necessity. In other words, it is the twist in a story, particularly, according to Aristotle, the twist wherein the hero gets what's coming to them. The best example of Peripatia, again, according to fucking Aristotle, is Oedipus, who goes from conquering hero and king with a sexy new cougar of a wife to a cursed blind motherfucker. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard, but Aristotle and I, We don't generally get along, but I have to give the guy occasional credit, and this here might be one of those times. The usefulness of Parapatea is twofold. For starters, it's dramatically interesting. The greater the distance covered between beginning and ending, the more entertaining a story you've theoretically got on your hands. And peripeteia is a tool for covering a whole bunch of distance. In a drama like Oedipus, the powerful is suddenly made powerless. The millionaire is stripped of their riches, etc. In a comedy, the put-upon schmuck finds love. The pauper is granted a great largesse, stuff like that. The circumstances of the story change to the point of reversal, and that is just good fun. Oh, except I shouldn't say it's just good fun, because that's not what it is at all, according to fucking Aristotle. See, what Aristotle realized, and this is where I really have to doff my hat to the asshole, is that story necessarily conveys meaning, or what he called thought. In the real world, stuff happens mostly on account of stuff just happening. But when events are viewed through the lens of narrative, they take on special significance, moral significance even. And that is why, to Aristotle, Peripatia should only flow in two directions, rewarding virtue or punishing vice. When Oedipus claws out his eyes, it enforces a moral order that this is what happens when you get too big for your britches. When Pip is made rich by a mysterious benefactor, he serves as a universal lesson to us all. Whenever you meet an escaped convict in a graveyard, you must give him your Christmas pie. Story allows us to envision a just universe where goodness prospers and wisdom wins and where likewise greed and foolishness are knocked on their asses. But there are two more lines to draw on the Peripatia matrix, whether Aristotle wants us to or not. Those where the good are punished and those where the bad are rewarded. These are admittedly less popular forms, but they do exist. And they, like all stories, do carry thought. The most iconic good-punished story is definitely the book of Job, and Job teaches us something very profound, that we cannot expect just desserts, that sometimes the righteous suffer and that there is no way to explain that because we cannot know the mind of God. I don't know about you or Aristotle, but that seems like a pretty worthwhile lesson to me. So... What about the last one, the unearned success story, or the failing up story? We've all experienced them, haven't we? You've got one in mind right now, huh? That idiotic coworker turned idiotic manager? The unlikable teenager who's somehow the most popular kid in school? That crush you have who's with that awful partner? Guess what? They're getting married in August. What does that kind of peripeteia mean? What is, in Aristotle's terms, the thought behind it? What does a failing-up story teach us? I am not sure, but I can tell you the best one I know. This here is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. This is the tale of Lord Timothy Dexter, the luckiest asshole in history. It's hard to tell the tale of Lord Timothy Dexter, luckiest asshole in history, without sounding like an out-of-work actor leading a hop-on haunted bus tour. No offense to out-of-work actors leading hop-on haunted bus tours. Some of my favorite hop-on haunted bus tours are led by out-of-work actors. It's just not the vibe I generally try to achieve here. There are, let me just be frank about it, a couple of things I really hate about the tale of Lord Timothy Dexter, not least of those being... Lord Timothy Dexter himself, who was, you might have heard, an asshole, but also a very lucky asshole. And that's a dangerous adjective, because it leads one, against their will, into occasionally rooting for Lord Timothy Dexter. Which you hate to do, given what an asshole he was. More importantly, this story has two major problems that are very tough to address. One of them is historical, or I suppose I should say historiographical and the other is narrative the historiographical problem is simple i hate all of the sources (laughs) i hate them i don't mean that they're bad to read although some of them are or offensive although some of them are i i mean that i just don't trust them but there's no obvious reason to discount them or the story writ large either other than that it sounds Mostly like a series of urban legends, because indeed, that is how it has mostly been transmitted. Dexter himself left some writings, (laughs) boy did he, and they are even less trustworthy than you might be gathering by my sneering tone. In his lifetime, he also employed his very own poet laureate, his words, by the name of Jonathan Plummer. Since he was an extremely sycophantic employee of Dexter, the biographical information we can glean from Plummer is also more than a touch suspect, even before taking into account that he was a horrible writer, actually a fish merchant by trade, who Dexter arbitrarily elevated to his wild position. Outside of them, the oldest source that corroborates most of the details of the luckiest asshole in history is a book by Samuel L. Knapp, the former editor of the Boston Gazette, with the very straightforward title, Life of Lord Timothy Dexter. There are a few things about the book that get my eyes a The first is that Timothy Dexter died in 1806 when Samuel Knapp was just 22 years old, which isn't a major impediment since Dexter was unquestionably, a local celebrity in Knapp's hometown of Newburyport, Massachusetts. Knapp would have certainly heard stories about Dexter, but that probably would have been the extent of his knowledge. Stories he had heard, which gets us right back hopping on that haunted bus tour again. Weirder still is the pub date of Life of Lord Timothy Dexter. It came out in 1848, 38 years after its titular character's death, and get this, 10 years after its author's death. Did Knapp actually write this book? I mean, probably, but mm, I hate it, you see? The other problem, the narrative problem, is kind of wrapped up in everything I've already been ranting about. The issue is that the whole thing is very episodic. Very, and then, and then, and then. It's got a real Tom Sawyer quality about it. Actually, in more ways than one. Or, again, a real urban legend quality about it, like a whole bunch of badly remembered anecdotes being shared one after another in the late night hours, at a firelit bar, six tankards of beer in, after a long day spent on a hop-on-fucking-haunted-bus-tour. So what I'm gonna try to do, and wish me luck here, is both hide the seams and expose the wrinkles make of this messy business a better but less confident story and if at the end you appreciate the job remember the bathrooms in the back and the tip jars in the front patreon.com theconstant the <laughs> constant the tale of lord timothy dexter luckiest asshole in history might as well begin with his birth on January 22nd, 1747, in the city of Malden, in what was, at that point, the province of Massachusetts Bay. I couldn't tell you who his parents were, but it's safe to say they weren't nobles. Probably they were farmers, given that, according to the, (laughs) ahem, sources, Dexter himself was working as a farmhand by the time he was eight years old. It's clear that Dexter received little or no primary education, because his own writings are... (laughs) Oh boy, well, we'll get there eventually. When Dexter turned 15, he was sent off to apprentice leather tanning, first in Charleston, and then Boston. What Dexter learned from his leather tanning apprenticeship, aside from leather tanning, was that the only obvious way out of his humble beginnings was through brutal hard work, stinking dangerous chemicals, and bowing to the elites who held the capital he desired. The other thing that this leather tanning apprenticeship taught him, aside from leather tanning, was that all of that sucked, and he wanted another way. But mostly what he learned was leather tanning, and after seven years of on-the-job experience, he had finally mastered the trade and set out on his own. He moved to Newburyport, with eight dollars to his name. There, Timothy Dexter had his first bit of good luck in the person of Elizabeth Frothingham. Yes, Frothingham. I know. Some sources, which I hate, suggest Frothingham was a con artist, or as the old-fashioned parlance puts it, a sharper, which probably just means she sold stuff at prices that people found unfair, or maybe she was a straight-up swindler, who knows. What we do know is that when Elizabeth met Timothy, she was recently widowed, and the two of them were quickly married. What we also know is that her viduity, oh, that's another vocab word for you, viduity, her viduity had been pretty lucrative. She'd inherited a good amount of money and a decent home. We don't, strictly speaking, know that this is what attracted Timothy Dexter to her, but it is a good guess, since the other thing we can confidently say about Elizabeth Frothingham is that Timothy Dexter, her new husband, hated her. But if Dexter was motivated by greed, he had miscalculated. In addition to the inheritance, Elizabeth had also been left with four children, and within a couple of years of her second marriage, she'd born two more. However much her dead ex had left her with, it wasn't enough to feed eight mouths, which led Timothy Dexter back, against his will, to tan and more leather. He resumed his hated work in the basement of his new wife's house, doing well enough that he was later able to set up a stall in the village square. And that might have been the end of Timothy Dexter's story, such that it was a story at all. He had a wife, a bevy of kids, and a moderately successful leather tanning business. He didn't enjoy any of those things, but those were the things he had. And he might have gone on just a miserable middle-class miser, impotently dissatisfied like so many of his 18th century peers. Except that on April 19th, 1775, Seven hundred British soldiers marched into Lexington, Massachusetts, looking for an arsenal they had heard was being hoarded by colonial militia. They were met by seventy-seven colonial minutemen armed with rifles, standing in Lexington's common green, blocking their advance. By the rude bridge that arched the flood. Oh, oh, you guys have it. Okay, go on. The shot heard round the world, as Emerson called it in the Concord hymn, was fired without orders by an unknown soldier who may have been on either side. But once that shot rang out, everybody answered. Eight of the colonials were killed, ten more were wounded, while the British regulars suffered just one injury. The Minutemen retreated, and the British advanced. When they arrived at Concord, still looking for the arsenal, as well as the rebel leaders Sam Adams and John Hancock, the Redcoats split up, and things went a bit differently. The colonial militia had been warned of the attack, and Minutemen from all around the area had hurried to Concord. 400 of them met approximately 100 Redcoats at the North Bridge in Concord. They routed the Brits, forcing a retreat, but that wasn't the end because the militia were hiding behind trees and rocks all around the road back to Boston, and they took potshots at the royalists the whole way. By the time the Brits reached safety in Boston, they'd suffered more than 300 casualties, and the colonials were hot on their heels, blocking the city gates and forming a naval blockade. The siege of Boston had begun, and with it, the American Revolution. The revolution changed Timothy Dexter's fortunes, quite literally, in two spectacular ways. Throughout the war, Newburyport prospered, mainly because it served as a home base for colonial privateers seizing English merchant ships. This was good news for Dexter, but didn't fundamentally change his financial situation. That would take the end of the war, and a real long-shot turn of events. To finance their fight against the Motherland, the Continental Congress had begun issuing their own paper money shortly after the battles of Lexington and Concord. These notes were known as continentals, and they were a disaster. Each of the 13 colonies printed their own continentals without any coordination with the rest, resulting in a flooded market that caused the value of the notes to badly depreciate. Continentals weren't backed up by physical assets like gold or silver, and they weren't backed up by a strong central government or bank either. Mostly, their value rested upon the ability of the colonies to collect taxes and issue bonds. Because when your tax bill came due, or when Massachusetts brought out new bonds, you could pay for them with Continentals. Unfortunately, during the war, the colonies had a hell of a time collecting taxes or issuing bonds, so the one thing you could guaranteeably use the Continental for was effectively moot. The colonies didn't have any good way to retire the currency either, so once bills hit the marketplace, they just kept piling up. Worse still, because Continentals came in so many forms and from so many places, they were incredibly easy to counterfeit not just by cons and opportunists and the desperate, but even by the British government, who engaged in a large-scale clandestine war effort to flood the colonies with fake money in order to spur inflation and break confidence. By 1778, continental dollars were being traded at one-fifth of their face value. Two years later, they were down to one-fortieth. And by May of 1781, they had become effectively worthless and it is around then that timothy dexter began buying them in mass i have to emphasize here just what a stupid thing this was to do by the time dexter got in on the game continentals were trading at a fraction of a penny per dollar massachusetts had its own currency the massachusetts pound which was performing so badly that the colony did whatever it could to pull every note they could find out of circulation by the end of the war colonial money was such a boondoggle that it'd become a popular slang term if you bought a mule who wouldn't walk or a gun that didn't fire or had a lazy in-law who was bleeding your sister dry you could say that they were not worth a continental and everyone knew what you meant it remained a popular american idiom for more than a century even today you might have heard some particularly affected yankee say it at one time or another when dexter began buying up continental dollars and massachusetts pounds they were valued at something like 250 to 1 and nothing about that situation looked likely to improve The colonies and the Congress had all tried passing laws to enforce a minimum value of their currencies. The army had threatened action against anyone who refused to deal in dollars. And some of the founding fathers wrote editorials in newspapers deriding currency devaluers as traitors. But none of it worked. Every sign pointed to the money ending up less useful than the paper it was written on. The question then is why Timothy Dexter, a moderately successful leather tanner with six children and a wife, whom he despised, remember, would invest everything he had in such a terrible product. If the revolutionaries were to lose the war, both King George and General Washington agreed, it wouldn't be because of the military, but the treasury, and that looked like a real, looming possibility. So what's up with Timmy? The sources, which I hate, provide a number of equally likely solutions. The first is that Timothy Dexter was an idiot, which seems pretty well established. The second is that Timothy Dexter was a genius, which, yes, flies in the face of the first theory, but it's not without its merits. The third explanation, which doesn't contradict either of those, is that Dexter was a patriot. See, Timothy Dexter wasn't the only person buying up Continentals in the 1780s. The most disastrous thing about the colonial currency was that it was the main means of payment for American soldiers, which, you can imagine, wasn't great. The colonies began supplementing their earnings with supplies and goods, but that only went so far, especially since most of the enlisted had signed up for three-year contracts. What incentive did they have to re-up if their payments were worthless and getting worse? So, a number of the more well-to-do revolutionaries, particularly John Hancock, started buying Continentals as an act of patriotic charity to try to keep the currency circulating just enough to encourage the army not to desert. And Timothy Dexter did likewise. The difference between him and John Hancock, oh boy there are a few but the important one here was that he wasn't rich and he put nearly everything he had into the effort he should have been doomed but along came
1: alexander
0: hamilton at the end of the war hamilton started working on his famous debt plan which included an offer to buy up continentals at one percent of their face value That wasn't a great deal for most, but it was an incredibly great deal for Dexter, who had collected the money at a third of that price. Better still, Massachusetts, now a state, began to reissue their own pound notes, which they had ceased making entirely before. Dexter's Massachusetts pounds weren't just worth 1% now, they were fully valued. Almost overnight, Timothy Dexter had outrageously, improbably, become among the richest men in all of Newburyport. And that is when things got really wild.
1: So, turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It was
0: 1783. And Timothy Dexter, through the stupefyingly unlikely intervention of Alexander Hamilton, had gone from a humble leather tanner to a multi-millionaire. Actually, he'd probably never been humble, but he certainly wasn't now. He bought a mansion. He bought two mansions. He sold one mansion and used the proceeds to improve the other. It was the biggest, gaudiest, tackiest house in all of Newburyport. He had a metal tower built at incredible expense atop the chateau and a golden orb fitted to its crown. He bought the finest carriage available, commanded by a team of blemishless cream horses. He employed a painter to create for him a coat of arms, which he then embossed on the sides of the carriage and declared himself lord. Most ostentatiously of all, he had a statue garden installed in his front yard, Forty statues, each of them standing upon a tall marble pillar overlooking his estate. They were made in the likenesses of whatever great men Dexter fancied, irrespective of any sort of unifying concept. Founding fathers, ancient philosophers, Native American chiefs, military generals, even mythological Greek gods. It was all the same, and if Dexter grew tired of one, he'd have it changed to someone else. Captain Morgan was once transformed into Napoleon Bonaparte. When Dexter asked for a statue of Thomas Jefferson, he was angered to see what the sculptor concocted. The statue was of a man in a powdered wig holding a document, the Declaration of Independence, a surefire way to denote its author. But not according to Lord Timothy Dexter. He accosted the sculptor angrily. It should be the constitution that Jefferson was holding. Er, mm, well, sputtered the sculptor. Sure, except, you know, Jefferson didn't write the Constitution. I- I'm sure you're thinking of the Declaration. No, it's the other way around. Dexter incorrectly corrected him. Jefferson wrote the Constitution, not the Declaration. Which is pretty obviously wrong to any American who ever had to take basic civics, but it was especially wrong given that this whole argument was happening just two or three years after the constitution had been written, which had been a pretty big deal. Dexter couldn't be convinced he was wrong, and the sculptor couldn't be convinced to agree, until Timothy Dexter returned to his house and came back with a pistol, which he then fired at the sculptor, narrowly missing him and blowing a hole into the side of his mansion. Thereafter, the sculptor agreed to the changes, and Jefferson's statue held the constitution from then on. And you're thinking, there's no way that happened, and I am with you. But these fucking sources, man, they all describe it the exact same way. And several, written when the statue garden still stood, urged readers to go see for themselves. Apparently Jefferson's constitution was waiting there to confirm the tale. Everyone also agrees that the tallest and grandest statue in the garden was made in the image of, ah, take a guess, lord timothy dexter himself with an inscription reading i am the first in the east the first in the west and the greatest philosopher in the western world all of this the mansion the carriage the title the statues was done to earn the respect of newburyport high society and as you would expect all of it did quite the opposite Which brings us to the next, and the most critical, there's no way that happened, in the tale of Lord Timothy Dexter, luckiest asshole in history. His continental currency windfall was incredible, but in the totality of his story, it reads more like a template for all of his business dealings to come. Over and over, Timothy Dexter made business decisions that sound absolutely asinine, and over and over, those decisions were improbably rewarded. It happens so many times that it strains credulity all on its own. But what absolutely breaks credulity is that, according to many of the fucking sources, most of these business decisions were made on advice from Dexter's fellow Newburyport elites, who hated him and his carriage and his mansion and his statues and wanted to take him down. The first example of this phenomenon was the bed warmers. When Dexter first hit it big, he didn't just buy all that neat stuff I told you about. He also shut down that leather tanning business he hated so much and got into a new trade that he thought better befitted his newfound stature, shipping. He purchased two ships and started looking for good trades to make. But Timothy Dexter knew nothing of trade or shipping or, well, he really just didn't know much, including apparently that it is hot in the Caribbean. If the fucking sources are to be believed, his jealous neighbors convinced him that he could do good business selling bed warmers to the West Indies. Bed warmers were all the rage in Chile, Massachusetts, so this made sense to Dexter. He bought up a bunch, had them loaded onto one of his ships, and had the captain sail south. You can tell by the name what they did, but if you're not familiar with the form factor, let me give you a little description of how these bed warmers worked. The kind of bed warmers Timothy Dexter sent to the Caribbean looked kind of like pairs of big brass frying pans closed up on top of one another with a long wooden handle. The idea was that you could fill the pan up with hot coals, close the lid, and maneuver the whole thing under your sheets in the evening. Then, when it was time for night-night, you simply pulled the handle to remove it, and voila, warm bed. You are, of course, already primed, and looking for how this device could have ended up a good sales item in the Caribbean, I know, but you're unlikely to figure it out. Who knows what Dector's captain was thinking during the voyage. Probably that he'd be coming back with a ship full of bed warmers and a really pissed-off boss. But when he arrived in the humid... Naturally warm-bedded West Indies, he lucked upon an incredible out. The islands were chiefly engaged in the production of molasses, and they quickly found that Dexter's brass bed warmers made great stir sticks for the stills. Not only were they long and big and sturdy, but each purchase came with two pots, the bottom and the lid, effectively doubling their usefulness. Dexter's captain sold every last piece at another enormous profit. His neighbors, in trying to sink him, had only managed to float him higher, but their plan had principally worked. They had proven the concept that you could tell Timothy Dexter whatever you liked and he would do it. So, according to the fucking sources, they tried again. This time they built upon the same premise as the Bedwarmers, which, after all, had worked out for his lordship, and told Dexter to ship mittens to the same places that had bought them. Made sense to Timmy, so off went his ship full of wool mittens to the West Indies. The twist on this foolhardy endeavor wasn't nearly so clever as the Bedwarmers, but it was even luckier. None of the people living in the Caribbean needed mittens for anything, But by sheer shrieking chance, there happened to be a large expedition in port from Portugal, and they were about to set off on a long expedition through harsh waters to the Baltic Sea. They were well supplied and ready to go, but you know what they could use for the journey? Some fucking mittens! Having succeeded this way once, Dexter sent a second load of mittens to the West Indies, which arrived just in time to be bought up by more explorers on their way to colder climates. The absolute topper of this trend, though, the one that'll really make you say, come on now, was the coal. According, once again, to the fucking sources, one of the local aristocrats who loathed Dexter decided to take the bad advice one step further. He suggested that Dexter get into the coal business. And you know where they needed coal? Across the Atlantic, in Newcastle. Newcastle, you can probably guess if you don't already know, already had coal. A lot of coal. In fact... In 1530, King Henry VIII had made a law that basically gave the Hostman Company of Newcastle a virtual monopoly on English coal. The whole city had grown up on this one business. Newcastle was so closely associated with coal, in fact, that it had birthed a popular idiom, even more popular than not worth a continental, and one you're fairly likely to have heard today. For example... Back in 2002, and this was the best example I found, a Scottish frozen pizza company called Cosmo Pasta Products sent 750,000 of their gluten free pies to Parma, Italy. The Scotsman called it a perfect example of the old phrase carrying coals to Newcastle. An act so ludicrously stupid it had been part of common parlance since the 1540s. And it seems the barely literate Lord Timothy Dexter was unfamiliar with the expression and took up the task, loading a ship full of pricey American coal and sending it off to the most coal-rich city in the Western world. The ship arrived safely in Newcastle with its redundant haul, only to find the city gripped by a coal miner strike. The last place in the world you would ever want to sell coal to, and Dexter's supply had arrived in the narrow band of time where they most needed the stuff. Yet again, Dexter's secret enemies had done him a great and accidental favor too much does it seem like too much because like i agree but you know the fucking sources what makes these stories extra flummoxing is that they're only a subset of dexter's ridiculous successes it'd be easy to think he was just gullible over trusting but even when nobody was there to whisper in his ear he still managed to come up with ridiculous plots Like when Newburyport was overrun with stray cats and a city ordinance was passed to have them rounded up and destroyed, before they could be tossed in the Merrimack, Dexter decided to purchase the whole lot of cats on the cheap and sell them off as pets. But the reason they were cheap is that they were feral and mean and riddled with fleas. Who would want to buy them? Eh, send them to the Caribbean said that old reliable Tim Dexter. His experience was that people in the West Indies would buy anything he brought them. And wouldn't you know it, he was right. By double dumb dookie luck, Bermuda was in the midst of a horrifying plague at the time. A plague of rats. Rack another one up for Timmy D. And it is at this point... we have to go back and revisit explanation two of his continental deal maybe just maybe timothy dexter wasn't an idiot after all maybe he was actually brilliant tacky eccentric vanglorious sure but brilliant that would be the best fitting explanation, right? That he was working the angles the entire time, counting on coal strikes and molasses stills and barehanded explorers and rat-pocked islands. Maybe he even had an inkling that Alexander Hamilton was out there, ready to make good on all that useless paper. It would make sense how he might have known about the strike or the Portuguese sailors or any of it. Well, I don't know, but still. This couldn't all just be dumb luck. And after all, a couple of times, Dexter seems to have shown real cleverness, like when he got his hands on 21,000 Bibles at a cut rate of 41 cents per book. Like so many things, he sent them to the West Indies. But before they arrived, he paid to pamphlet the islands in handbills, which suggested that any family without a Bible would go to hell. He sold the entire lot in just a few weeks for a total of $47,000. Was that a nice thing to do? No. Was it ethical? No. Was Timothy Dexter an asshole? You know it. But, at the very least he couldn't have possibly been as stupid as his fellow Newbury-Portians, not to mention the fucking sources, thought. Right? Well, you tell me. In the 1790s, Dexter had an idea for an aggressive new business. He decided to buy up all of the ivory coming into Massachusetts to become, effectively, the Ivory King of New England. Once the market was starved for the stuff, he'd be able to open up shop and name his own price. Shrewd, right? Well, there was one issue. Timothy Dexter didn't know what ivory was. He thought, it seems, that it was whalebone, which it is not. What Dexter had mistakenly purchased was 340 tons of baleen, the fine flexible and strong brush-like hairs that whales use for filtering their food, which he understood to be ivory. So yeah, his reputation as an idiot seems pretty well earned. His reputation as a lucky idiot is even better earned, since in the 1790s, men's fashion got very form-fitting and gentlemen wanting to look their best, started secretly wearing corsets like their wives, effectively doubling the corset market. And guess what corsets were made of? Right. Oh man, it is impossible to not root for Timothy Dexter. He's like an American Tall Tale or a Warner Brothers cartoon mascot. He's the ultimate underdog, triumphing again and again over impossible odds in the most improbable ways. And it doesn't hurt that he's a wild, carefree eccentric and that his antagonists are stuffy, moneyed, humorless New England wasps. I'm shocked he doesn't have a theme song sung by Burl Ives already. But we can't forget, we mustn't forget, that Lord Timothy Dexter wasn't just lucky. That's what the Haunted Bus Tour wants you to remember. He was also an asshole. And to remind you of that, we only need return to his wife, the widowed Elizabeth Frothingham. Poor Elizabeth Frothingham. I mean, hey, it's entirely plausible that Elizabeth was an asshole too. After all, one of the only things that the sources have to say about her, apart from her relationship with Timothy, is that she was a huckster. So maybe she kinda sucked. But even if she really sucked, even if she scammed every last soul in Newburyport, even if she sold secrets to the British, help! even if her first husband died because she fed him arsenic and rusty nails, she would still deserve better than Lord Timothy Dexter. Even if Timothy didn't hate her, just being associated with him was painful enough. Like most of Newburyport, Elizabeth found Timothy and his mansion and his heraldry and his carriage and his statue garden totally embarrassing. But hate her he did. How do I know? Friends, let me count the ways. For starters, There's what he wrote about her, which, uh, well, actually, let's come back to the writings. There's also what other people, the fucking sources, had to say about the matter. Some of the sources say they effectively separated after a few years, and I truly hope that's the case because the alternative story is super yikes. Samuel Knapp says that Timothy locked Elizabeth up in the mansion and told everyone she had died. And when people told him they had seen her in the house, he responded, Oh, I see why you'd think that, but actually that's her ghost. Isn't that the plot of Jane Eyre? Yes, it absolutely fucking is. And that's not the only uncanny literary parallel. At some point, Dexter started to get wise that the other aristocrats in town didn't actually respect him, and to test this creeping suspicion, he came up with his zaniest plan of all. More than every other aspect, I cannot believe that this part of the story could have possibly happened, but, say it with me, the fucking sources. So, fine, give me a lanyard, mic and a travel pack of Gushers, because I'm leading this haunted bus tour now. To determine who his true friends were, Lord Timothy Dexter, luckiest asshole in history, decided to fake his own death. Isn't that the plot of Tom Sawyer? Yes, it absolutely fucking is. But Dexter really went all out for it. He had a tomb built with special hidden ventilation and escape chambers. He had a mahogany coffin crafted that would be comfortable enough for the prank. Dexter approved its design after sleeping in it for several weeks. He had fine cards drawn up for everyone in the area, elegantly announcing his death and the funeral, therefore, at his mansion with the best food and wine in Massachusetts, as he would have wanted. On the day, there were 3,000 mourners, or 3,000 food and wine appreciators, who can say, whom the recently deceased was able to observe through some hollow flooring he'd had installed. Everything was going swimmingly, so far as Timothy Dexter was concerned, aside from one thing. Here, accounts contradict. Some say that Dexter had let his wife and children in on the plot, and told them how they had to act sad. In others, they were duped like everyone else. Either way, when Timothy Dexter looked around his faux funeral, phoneral, there was one thing out of place. Elizabeth wasn't crying in the first version of the story that only meant she wasn't a good actor in the second it meant she wasn't sad to be widowed a second time again in either event the result was the same timothy dexter was livid he crawled his way stealthily out of the basement and into the kitchen when elizabeth was alone there then he began beating her with his cane yeah Remember when you were still rooting for him? The assembled crowd, drinking and eating and reminiscing in his parlor, heard the sounds of violence and cautiously made their way to the kitchen, where they discovered the dearly departed caning his widow. Timothy Dexter froze, dropped the cane. His angry face turned before their very eyes into a shit-eating grin. He welcomed them into his home, shooed them back into the parlor, and joined them for the rest of the party, never acknowledging his fraudulent funeral, nor the spousal abuse, for the rest of the night. No way, right? Sure, but that is what the sources say. It seems that after the funeral debacle, Dexter gave up on ever winning the friendship and admiration of the upper crust of Newburyport. In his estimation, they didn't like him only because of their boring bourgeois conventions and stick-up-the-ass Protestantism, which, honestly, eh, good guess. If he couldn't join the upper crust, then he would have to settle for annoying the upper crust. And as for respect and company, well that's what the lower crust was for. Discontented with his first widow, he found another, Madame Hooper. In her viduity, vocab, she claimed to have gained the second sight and regularly read Dexter's fortune. Now was when he brought out the 20-year-old fishmonger, Jonathan Plummer, as his poet laureate. He wrote for Dexter a stream of smoke-blowing dribble that was exactly to the Lord's liking, like this little daisy. Lord Dexter is a man of fame. Most celebrated is his name. More precious far than gold that's pure, Lord Dexter shine forevermore. Lord Dexter, thou whose name alone Shines brighter than King George's throne, Thy name shall stand in books of fame, And princes shall his name proclaim. Lord Dexter hath a coach beside, In pomp and splendor he doth ride, The horses champ the silver bit, And throw the foam around their feet, Feet? Ugh. Should have stuck to fishmongering plumber. But compared to Lord Dexter himself, Jonathan Plummer was Shakespeare reborn. In 1802, Dexter published a book, yeah, let's call it a book, entitled A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, and it is among the strangest books ever written. For starters, it has no plot or structure, or overarching theme, it's mostly a collection of homespun aphorisms and anecdotes mixed in with a healthy glut of grievances. Grievances against King George, against the church, against the people of Newburyport, and particularly against his wife, the hated widow Frothingham. It is also, perhaps, the worst spelled book ever, practically illegible. Make is regularly spelled m-a-k great is g-r-a-t crazy c-r-a-s-e-y new is n-o-u-e and on and on but the wildest feature of a pickle for the knowing ones is the punctuation there isn't any not a period not a comma not even an apostrophe The whole book, all 8,847 words of it, is one endless run-on sentence, only broken up sporadically when Dexter concludes a particularly powerful thought by signing his name beneath it. To read A Pickle for the Knowing Ones is to know madness. So let's give it a go, huh? Forder what different was we have on this world. And the other world, two good women lived in a town where I once lived. One was very sick of a consumption. Near death, both belonged to the church. Very honest, only the well woman was weak in woos. And thing says until the sick woman, I thinks you will see my husband do tell him I and my son a very well. And we are all well, and the so is pigged, and got seven pretty pigs, and fare you well, sister, this, I believe, is certing trow, and so fare the well, I shall come again in little while. And fordermore, I am for some foe decephens... But very faux fower than death-priest craft is very good for what to make old women grunt and young children cry. And old fowls fling snort, oh yees, and brack up feramies done by untrose lion. And swearing to a lie, stop, I am alive. Oh god, it just keeps going. Old man, I have heard your wicked stuff. You have ingered my friends aplenty, and if you don't stop, I will call forth one Abraham Bishop to put Niklos, and all that tries to keep up lying is there should be any such stuff in the land. Church members pant to be fond of deception. They are perfect, but if there is any put them with the tough-born, the rubbage pice on it, or that fear not wind or filth, Go to the rackle breed, and woes them toward. I like to say, now shake, stink, strong break, and wine master bottle house is the bull of a black man, a friend to John Meckel, gentleman from a crow's nest. Where now, where ass coal, coal ass, where, where, now, where, oh, yours some, where dear oil, and now the Inguns lived there, only that can't be, he was from hell. Where his or was brother come from? Oys, oys, Oyies, a crow's nest or Oregon or down? Oh Jesus! As you can no doubt guess, a pickle for the knowing ones was a humongous success. <laughs> That part I can guarantee you is true, because A Pickle for the Knowing Ones went through numerous printings and editions in the years after it first dropped. People couldn't get enough of whatever it was Timothy Dexter had written. They only had one complaint. Could he, maybe, do something about the lack of punctuation? Dexter acknowledged that shortcoming, and in the second edition included all the marks necessary to more easily digest his content. But all of this new punctuation was lumped together at the very end of the book a whole page of nothing but commas periods question marks colons and semicolons dashes and exclamation points in the new introduction to this edition dexter instructs readers to pepper and salt his writings with them as they please he died the next year but his book went through six more editions they probably are the reason we got all the other books and fucking sources that brought us here. In the end, Timothy Dexter managed to transform himself into exactly the sort of revered icon he was trying to be. And meanwhile, who else can you name among the hoity-toity of 18th century Newbury Port? You're kind of back to liking him again, right? I know, it's a real problem. Maybe that is why we get so few peripateas of this variety. In real life, when some blowhard stumbles back asswards into undeserved success, it drives us crazy, like we're regular Newburyport aristocrats. But give that blowhard one layer of narrative remove, and suddenly he's a charming anecdote, the thing you remember from the otherwise ho-hum hop-on haunted bus tour. Rather, then taking away the grim lesson that the universe sometimes rewards idiocy and villainy, we naturally turn the recipients of those rewards into geniuses and heroes. It makes me think that maybe we shouldn't tell these kinds of stories after all. And that's the part of Timothy Dexter that pisses me off the most. Because it means, I might have to admit, that fucking Aristotle was fucking right. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Blue Dot Sessions, Ketza, the Concord Museum, and the United States Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. We've got a loaded month over at the Constant Secret Feed. A few days ago, I dropped an episode about another one of the weirdest books ever written, which also happens to be among my favorite books ever written, and one that... Once you know about it, you start to see everywhere. I've also got a live show from the Paper Machete coming out soon there, and Heather is working on a really fascinating follow-up to her Disney episode about Walt's wild collaboration with one of the 20th century's most famous avant-garde artists. If you would like to hear any of that and get access to new episodes early and ad-free, you should head over to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to help support the making of this show. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home of Christopher Kalen, who won the lotto in 2014 three times in a row, this has been The Constant.